Actually, I told uh, my daughter Anastasia that I wanted her to speak this morning, and she said, I can do that. She said, I'll just stand up there and say, bless you all, go home. <laughs> I said, well, that, that will enjoy that, won't they? And then I told Jan that I wanted her to do it, and she just looked horrified and said, <laughs> and said no. So, <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we are so aware, every one of us, that uh, you're the one that's in charge. You're the Lord of lords, the King of glory. You're our light and our life. And Lord, that if it's just us speaking, we're just, uh, we're ashamed. Because we don't have anything to impart apart from your word and apart from who you are. So we pray that the Spirit of God would enlighten us and guide us and teach us all of more and more of who you are and we just submit to you in the name of Jesus Amen I want to just do a uh, brief overview of I'm not going to say the Bible the first five chapters of Joshua and so it'll be just sort of skimming across the water but it's amazing to see God's plan and how every detail is worked out and that he doesn't need our help. But before I do that, I'd like to show you how it works out when we plan our own thing and how it doesn't go so well. This was, um, let me see. A man named Larry Walters. I'm sure you remember him because this was back in 1982. Larry Walters had a nickname called Lawn Chair Larry. And back in 1982, he was frustrated because he had wanted to be in the Air Force, but his eyesight wouldn't let him. So he decided that he wanted to fly. And what he did, he and his girlfriend purchased 45 eight-foot weather balloons. And he bought these along with some helium tanks from a city in California. And... Um, on July the 2nd in 1982, Walters attached these helium balloons, all, what, 45 did I say, of them, to his lawn chair in his backyard in San Pedro, California. Now, he took his pellet gun with him. He took a CB radio, sandwiches, beer, and a camera. Now he expected to go up anywhere between 100 and 200 feet with these helium balloons attached to his lawn chair. But when his friends cut the cord that tied the lawn chair to his Jeep, his lawn chair rose rapidly to a height of between 16 of around 16,000 feet. <laughs> Uh, yeah. 
And uh, he was actually spotted by a couple of commercial airliners. <laughs> and at first he didn't shoot any of the balloons because he was afraid that he would be lopsided and it would dump him off the lawn chair back out into the air. So he slowly drifted along Long Beach area of California and he crossed the primary approach to the Long Beach airport. And he was in contact with an organization called REACT, which is a citizen CB radio monitoring organization, who recorded the conversation with Larry. And REACT said, what information do you wish me to tell the airport at this time as to your location and difficulty? And Larry said, "Um, uh, the difficulty is um, uh, this is an unauthorized balloon launch. And I know I'm in federal airspace, and I'm sure the ground crew has alerted the proper authorities, but uh, just in case, call them and tell them I'm okay. (laughs) After 45 minutes in the air, he shot down, he shot several of the balloons, and then accidentally dropped his pellet gun. He came down pretty quickly, and the dangling part of some of the lines from the balloon got tangled in a power line causing a 20-minute outage of power in one of the Long Beach neighborhoods. But he was able to climb down to the ground. He was immediately arrested by waiting members of the Long Beach Police Department. Regional Safety Inspector Neil Savoy was reported to have said, we know he broke some part of the Federal Aviation Act, and as soon as we decide which part of it, some type of charge will be filed. If he had a pilot's license, we would suspend that, but he doesn't. (laughs) Walters initially was fined $4,000 for violating earlier U.S. federal aviation regulations, including operating an aircraft within an airport traffic area without establishing and maintaining two-way communication with the control tower. Walters appealed, and the fine was reduced to $1,500. A charge of operating a civil aircraft for which there is not currently, in effect, an unworthiness certificate was dropped as it was not applicable to his class of aircraft. (laughs) Just after landing, Walters spoke to the press saying, Were you scared? He said, Yes. Would you do it again? No. Why did you do it? Because you can't just sit here. <laughs> now that's what happens when a plan is a human plan without a whole lot of thought. But this is what happens when it's God's plan. Moses, the man of God, is dead as we walk into the first chapter of Joshua. Israel should have gone into the promised land some 38 years earlier, but because they were disobedient to the plan of God, to his commands, they wandered in the desert another 38 years before they finally were ready to go in. So now they're at the entrance of the promised land. But one big change is Moses, the man of God, has died. 
So here is Joshua, who is the uh, lieutenant of Moses, the military commander, who God has anointed to take the place of Moses. And so the first nine verses of the first chapter of Joshua read this way. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross the Jordan, you and all the people, to the land which I am giving to you, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the soles of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun, will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give your people, or this people, possession of the land, which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, and you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will leave, excuse me, have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Did you notice that God told him three times to be strong and courageous? Now here's the military man that's been raised up with Moses. He's seen all these miracles God has done. And now God says, you're going into this land that I promised to give you. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. It just goes to show you that no matter what we're facing and no matter what our background is, no matter how many times we think that we have overcome, we're very subject to being fearful. So we have to know constantly that God is for us. The book of Deuteronomy, the book prior, just prior to Joshua, says that Israel wept for Moses for 30 days after he died. God says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now get ready to cross the Jordan River. The, the land is a gift to Israel from the Lord. But Joshua is told to be strong and courageous. If it's a gift, and God's going to give it to you, why does he have to tell you to be strong and courageous? Because if you think you're going to sit back and put your feet up and relax, and God's going to say, don't worry, here it is, you're wrong. It's never that way in Scripture. 
you always have to be strong and courageous and do what God said. He's going to give it to you, but you have a part to play, and your part is to be obedient, and your part is to fight. Because everything we do in this life is a fight. Now, it's a spiritual fight, first of all, above all else. It's a spiritual fight. But if you can't win the spiritual fight, you're not going to win the fight that you see with your eyes. Because that's always the basic, immediate, unseen, vital fight that we're fighting. What makes Joshua such a great leader is that he did everything that God commanded. Joshua knew Moses. Moses wrote the law God had given him. So for all these years, Moses is writing down everything that God has commanded him. He personally knows Joseph. He know, I mean Moses. He knows Moses makes mistakes. He knows that Moses is a sinner. But he knows that the word that Moses is given is God's word. And it, you don't have to wait 200 years or 300 years for the word of God to be established as true. It's true now. And he knew it was true immediately. And Joshua was supposed to study the law. He was supposed to meditate on it day and night. Not only was he to know about it and to speak about it and to meditate on it, but he, more importantly than anything, he was to obey it. Exactly the same thing that God tells us. You can't know it. You can't meditate on it. You also have to obey it. And if you don't, then that means the others didn't apply. Everybody wants to be prosperous with what he does. But the problem is that we don't follow God's plan on how to be prosperous. And the plan that he gave Joshua is the same plan that he gives us. Know the word of God, speak about it, meditate on it, and above all, do it. The call is to full obedience. Partial obedience is not acceptable because partial obedience is disobedience. Joshua was a good commander. He was a brilliant soldier. He was a leader of men. But there have been a lot of people throughout history that have been like this. His great secret was that he was diligent to know and to do all of God's law. Deuteronomy 27 gives instructions for how the law was to be read at, play, at a place called Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim in the Promised Land. This is written years before they get there. But this is what it said. It told Israel what to do once they got this place. And if you go to the 20... Um, what is it, the 23rd chapter of Joshua toward the end of the book, you see that when they get there, Joshua does exactly what God had told Israel they had to do when they got there before they ever went into the promised land. And he did it to the smallest detail. And then if you look at the end of Joshua's life, at the end of the book, he told the people, be very strong, 
be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right and to the left. The key word is faithfulness. When we get into the second chapter of Joshua, we find the remarkable story of Rahab. And it's remarkable in many ways, but maybe the first thing that stands out is then in a book of violent conquest where many, many people in this land that Israel is to occupy, uh, they're facing constant war and Israel is killing all of these people. So in a book that's full of conquest, the very first thing you see the very first story is one of mercy. Mm-hmm. If we look at the second chapter of Joshua, <clears throat> the first 14 verses, it says, Then Joshua the son of Nun sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, <clears throat> saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho, So they went and came into the house of a harlot, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho went sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you shall overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the land, to the, on the road to the Jordan, to the forge. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. <clears throat> now before they lay down, she came up to them to the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all of the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you for the Lord your God. He is God of heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore, please, swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our foes, excuse me, our lives from death. So the men said to her, Our life for yours, if you do not tell 
this business of ours, and it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. So here's Rahab, the harlot, and here are the two spies that are sent into Jericho. Thirty-eight years earlier, Moses had sent twelve spies into the land to come back and give him a report before they were going to go into the land and conquer it just as God had promised. As you well know, two spies out of the twelve came back and said, we can do this. Ten of them came back and said, it's too difficult for us. We can't do it. And they convinced the rest of the people that they couldn't do it. And so the people refused to go in. And God said, okay, you refuse to go in, you're going to wander in the desert until everyone that doesn't believe me dies. And they did. For another 38 years, they're in the desert wandering until everyone over a certain age that refused to believe God died. So, Joshua doesn't want a repeat of that. So he picks two spies who he knows are faithful to God, and he sends them out to get a report. Now, some people have questioned this action and saying, why do you think Joshua sent spies? Saying he should have simply trusted God and not sent any spies in. But God told Moses to send in 12 spies before, and there's no reason to think he didn't tell Joshua this time to send in spies. If God had commanded Joshua to send spies in, then the question is, why is this needed? God's plan, as you'll see later, doesn't involve Israel fighting anybody to start with, so why does he need to send spies into the land? Joshua doesn't need any information about Jericho what he needs is a plan to save Rahab because God has determined by his foreknowledge that this woman is going to be saved so he sends in spies to make arrangements to save Rahab and her household. There's a similar situation in the New Testament, in the book of John, where Jesus goes to, on his way to Galilee, he goes through Samaria. And he goes through Samaria, and his disciples are saying, what are we doing this for? Jews don't go through Samaria. We hate these people. Most Jews go around Samaria, Samaria, not through it. But Jesus says, I must go. He had an appointment with a Samaritan woman at the well because God had ordained that this woman and many other people in Samaria were going to be saved, were part of the elect of God. The same thing applies here. God has determined that Rahab is going to be saved. She's going to become part of the nation of Israel. So here's the plan. You send the spies... Rahab, there's going to be a plan to save her. All the people in Jericho are going to die, except Rahab and her family. God knows what he's doing. Duh. Imagine. (laughs) 
Now, the spies don't have any idea what's going on. They're just doing what they're supposed to do. But God's been working in Rahab's heart, leading her to true faith, and now he's sending his messengers to confirm her faith and physically save her. In this story of great mercy to Rahab, it's worth noting Rahab's qualifications for being saved. She doesn't have any. There are no earthly, physical, according to man, reasons for her to be saved. First, she's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. And the Jews are not interested in saving Gentiles. A Gentile is everybody that's not a Jew. Okay? So she's not a Jew. And this is the way Paul put it in Ephesians 2.12. She was a foreigner to the covenant of promise without hope and without God in this world. That's who Rahab was. And Rahab was an Amorite. There are a lot of different tribes and peoples in this promised land that God has given Israel. And the Amorites were one of them. And they were probably by far the worst of every group there. And Rahab is an Amorite. They were singled out for particular condemnation because of their sin. They were corrupt. They were a vile people. They sacrificed their children in fire to their false gods. So you've got an Amorite Gentile woman. And one more thing. She's a prostitute. She's an immoral woman. She may have been converted before the spies got there, but she's identified in Scripture as a prostitute. The spies probably did not go to her house for immoral purposes. But where else could two strangers go in this city where they were likely to be questioned less than the house of a prostitute? No question. Everybody comes in and goes out. She was an immoral woman just like the Samaritan woman was that Jesus went to in the New Testament. This is another case of the unexplainable mercy of God reaching out to save. Rahab was no worse than we are and yet God saves us. It's not the righteous, but sinners whom Christ redeems. So Rahab hides the spies from the soldiers of Jericho and helps them escape. She risked her life for the spies. She turned away from her past, from her own people, and she identified with the Jewish people. And Rahab was not accepted as some person on the outskirts of the Jewish community. 
but as a full member. She married a Jew, and she becomes the ancestor of King David and the great king of all. She becomes the ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine. And just like Rahab, we are supposed to be God's people that stand in opposition to the surrounding godless culture that we see everywhere. We go into chapter 3. We see that Israel, after the spies return from Jericho, travels to the edge of the Jordan River. And the Jordan River is the boundary of the promised land. When you go over the Jordan River, you're now into the land that God promises. And the priests are supposed to lead the way. And they're supposed to carry the Ark of the Covenant. The people are to follow behind, but they're they're supposed to keep a distance between the Ark of the Covenant and the priests of about 2,000 cubits, which is about 1,000 meters. And this is what it says in chapter 3. If my voice holds up. If we start in verse 5, it says, Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joseph spoke to the priest, Joshua spoke to the priest, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of the people. Now the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. You shall moreover command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Gergesite, the Amorite, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now then take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. It shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, rest in the water of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan will be cut off. And the waters which are flowing from above will stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priest carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows its banks all the days of the harvest. The waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away from Adam, at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and that and those which were flowing down 
toward the sea of Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. And the priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the action the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. Imagine the most special day you've ever had in your life. One that just stands in your mind above everything you can imagine. And then multiply it many, many times. Not only had Israel been waiting for 40 years for this day, but it was much longer than that. God had promised the land, this promised land, that they're never getting ready to go into. He had promised it more than 500 years earlier to Abraham. And it had been repeated to Abraham's descendants over and over for centuries. And now the time has come. The parallel to the crossing of the Red Sea is obvious. The Jordan River for most of the year, or a good part of it, is no big deal the cross but at harvest time it's a raging torrent and if you've ever seen pictures of what it looks like believe me you don't want to go in it because you'll get washed away and God caused it to stop the waters to stand up like this and over two two and a half million people cross over on dry ground and they get on the other side and the water Closes back up again. It's like the Red Sea. Again, that, that river is, is nothing but a, a terrifying thing to think about crossing. Unless you're God. Where even the water and the wind obey you. When the feet of the priests, who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant... Step into the water, the water stops and goes in parts. An important thing to notice and remember is that the ark of God leads the way. And the ark is a, is a, is a, a chest inlaid with gold. And on the top of the ark is what's called the mercy seat and is an angel at one end, an angel at the other end. And it symbolizes the presence of God. Because inside the ark are the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod that had budded, and a jar of manna. And when God looks down on the ark of the covenant that contains the Ten Commandments, what he sees are the broken commandments that people have always broken. Everybody has broken God's law. And he looks down and he sees the broken law. Which means we deserve to die. But you've got the mercy seat, the covering, with the angel standing over the top of it like this. And the mercy seat is where the priest sprinkled the blood of the animals that were sacrificed. Which meant God 
sees these innocent animals and for a time, a year, he takes away the sin of the people. But this is a temporary thing. It will not last forever and animals can't really do this. It's just a symbol. But it's a symbol of blood, life, because the Bible says life is in the blood, which means it takes death because we deserve to die. The animal dies. And the blood is sprinkled, showing that there has been death because we broke God's law. And we deserve death. But the Son of God is coming to take it away forever. But anyway, the ark leads the way because it's the presence of God and it also signifies the covenant of God. The covenant that God has made with his people. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So it's the presence of God and the covenant of God. It points to the unchanging character of God. If we go to chapter 4. God commands the twelve stones be taken out of the river and placed where Israel is camped on the other side of the river. And these stones are to be a memorial, a reminder. Uh, Chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 say this. Let this be a sign among you so that when your children ask later, saying, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, because the water of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. And in verse 21 through 23, it says, He said to the sons of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you, until you had crossed just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed. The stones were to tell the other nations around them that God is different. He really exists. He's a living God, a God of real power who is close at hand. And when the priest carrying the ark stepped out of the river, all the waters of the Jordan overflowed its banks just like it had before. And the last chapter that we'll look at, chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. Now it came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed that their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. At that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make for yourself flint knives and circumcised again the sons of Israel the second time. So Joshua made himself 
flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeah Haraloth. This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them all. All the people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of war, died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way, as they came out of Egypt, had not been circumcised. For the sons of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness, and all the nation, that is the men of war, who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord had sworn that he would not let them see the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. Their children, whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not (coughs) circumcised them along the way. Now when they had finished circumcising all the men, They remained in their places, the camp, until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Warren Wiersbe said, God's people must be prepared before they can be trusted with victory. The conquest of the promised land was God's victory. It wasn't Joshua's and it wasn't Israel's. The victory is only ours if we are the covenant people of God. And the two spies that you belong to, that belong to God in the Old Testament, were certain, excuse me, not two spies, the two signs that you see in the Old Testament that show that you are part of the covenant people of God are circumcision and the observance of the Passover. Okay? And both both of these signs took place after Israel had crossed over the Jordan River and before any action took place against Jericho. The people that inherited the land, or that inhabited the land, were terrified of Israel. They saw what God had done. They had heard years before what he did in the Red Sea. Now they see what he did at the Jordan River. They've heard how he destroyed these other famous kings before they got there. They are terrified. But Israel has to be prepared before they go in the promised land, before they start fighting to take the land. Circumcision for all males was a mark of the covenant. It signified membership in the covenant people of Israel, just like baptism signifies membership in the covenant community of the church today. It was a divine seal on those whom God has chosen as his people. It marks every male as a descendant of Abraham. The symbol also is a picture of cutting off the flesh from the world 
and relying on God as having a new and living heart and not one stone. Deuteronomy 36 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. For 40 years in the wilderness, they did not obey this. And now they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And God's not going to let them go in until they show that they're members of the covenant. They have an outward sign to show what's been done in their heart. We need to see how different God's plan is from a plan that man comes up with. Israel's crossed the Jordan and the people of Canaan are terrified. But instead of attacking Jericho at once, God says, no, circumcise all the males. Well, you're not going anywhere until they heal. It takes a few days before you are able to go anywhere. You're helpless. Jericho, the people of Jericho and the surrounding territory should have said this is the perfect opportunity to attack them but they didn't they're scared they don't know what's going on they just know they're afraid of these people and so Israel waits God's in control and it's more important for the hearts of the people to be right with God than anything else that's ultimate as people of the Lord we need to learn this lesson. What we do is important, but what we are is a lot more important than what we do. It's more important that God have our hearts and minds than our words. And while they're camped out, they also ate the Passover meal, which is also only for the covenant people. And now they're free from the shame of being enslaved Egypt all those years the last verses in chapter 5 13 through 15 says now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand and Joshua went to him and said to him are you for us before our adversaries. He said, No, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, Why has my Lord, what has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy <clears throat> and Joshua did so imagine Joshua God is getting ready to tell them how to attack Jericho and so Joshua is out at night and he's close to Jericho and he's probably going now why in the world am I going to do this Jericho was the most fortified city in this new land it was the entrance into the land you couldn't go around Jericho because if you did you got an enemy at your back they can attack you any time. You've got to get rid of Jericho first. 
So Joshua's looking at this city with its thick, tall walls. How are we going to do it? They don't have any siege ramps, any battering rams, anything like this. And while he's doing this, he sees this man with a drawn sword standing there. And Joshua says, Are you for us? Or are you for them? And this man says, Neither one. But as commander of the host of the Lord, I'm coming. I'm captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua falls on his face and bows down before him and said, What has my Lord to say to his servant? Who is this man? This man is a pre-incarnate. Incarnate means in bodily form. This is Jesus taking the form of a man before he's ever born in Bethlehem hundreds and hundreds of years later. He says, as captain of the host of the Lord, which means I've got it all. I'm the one in charge of everything. Remember Jesus told when they arrested him in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, don't you know that I could call all these legions of angels if I wanted to? They're at my command. And here's the commander of the Lord's host. Now we know it's Jesus because every time in the Bible that somebody falls down before an angel to worship them, the angel says, don't you do that. Don't you worship me. You only worship one person and that's God. And this person lets Joshua worship him. And The real question is not is whose side is he on. The real question is whose side are we on. Are we on God's side? Because God, remember, he doesn't say yes when God, when, Israel, when Joshua asks him. Even though Israel is doing what God has told them to do, Take Jericho. They're fulfilling the law of God. He also doesn't say he's on the side of the Canaanites. The truth that this teaches us is that even though we may profess to serve the Lord, we can't take it for granted that we're always on the right side. Unless our goals and positions are grounded in Scripture, we cannot reasonably expect the Lord to fight for us. To me, what came to my mind was World War II. There were, there were a, lot of, a number of Germans that were Christian. They weren't Nazis. Now, when they're fighting, they're praying to God, help us. You've got the allies that are Christians doing the same thing. The real question is who is God for? Because God, if we're not fighting for the Word of God, for what the Word of God teaches us, then no matter what we think we are, we're on the wrong side. It's, it's God that looks to us and says, 
what are your goals and positions and how do they line up with the Word of God? And if they don't line up with the Word of God, and if you're part of a group that's killing my people and slaughtering other people, then you can call yourself whatever you want to, but your purposes and goals are not lining up with the Word of God. So the question is, are we on God's side? Are we lining up our life according to what the Word of God says? The last thing is just um, to understand that we're in a battle every day of our life, and it's a spiritual life. It's a spiritual battle. Whose side are we on? And the only way we can overcome in this spiritual battle is to be on the Lord's side. And the only way we can be on the Lord's side is to walk with Him in truth and to obey what He says. And the minute we start thinking that uh, I'm a Christian, God must be on my side, we've got it wrong. If we're a Christian, we need to say, are we on God's side? And the only way we can be on God's side is to be faithful to His Word. And Joshua was always faithful to the Word of God. He never wavered, not once, do you find any wavering in Joshua. And how much more faithful can a man be than that? Let's pray. Lord, please help us to think clearly, to understand without going into all sorts of justification. Lord, the question is, we are, is are we on your side? And I pray, Lord, that the word would be such a uh, be so embedded in our hearts and minds that we would know it, that we would love it, and that we would do all things that are called for. Pray that the Spirit of God would uh, convict us as we walk in the wrong way and just uh, enlighten our darkness. Lord, it's you that we love, and we just give you thanks this day for who you are. Amen. I'm going to turn to page 29 in the